Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 6th of September, 2012, and our guest is Angie McAllister. Angie, welcome. Thank you so much, Steve. Hi, everyone. I had a little trouble determining what your title was. It appears as two different titles in different places. What's your actual title? My actual title is Director of Faculty Innovations for the Apollo Innovation Group, which is the parent company of University of Phoenix. And for some reason, I kept coming up with some other title, Director of Data Innovation. That's true. Actually, if I could figure out how to get data and faculty in there, I would have done it. It's probably clear that I made that title up. <laughs> but um, given the topic of what we'll discuss today, I think you'll see that it's, it's a good one. <laughs> oh, fun. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. We have finished the Learning 2.0 conference. Uh, if you missed this conference, we think preliminary numbers show about 6,000 attendee logins over the course of the, uh, the four actual session days. Incredible keynote addresses, just an enormous amount of fun. Everything at learning20.com, all the recordings. As well, Connected Educator Month finished as August finished, but those recordings should be going up to uh, a terrific a month of activity, lots and lots of really great material. Hopefully that will be up and you'll you'll find things that are valuable to you. Or like me, you'll say, I have way more to watch recorded than is possible. And you'll just know it's there if you ever need it. The Future of Libraries conference is October 3rd through 5th. We're excited about that. Thanks to San Jose State University. This is the second year, October 3 through 5. Really a lot of fun. Uh, 24 hours a day for two days. And then in November, the 12th to the 16th, our five-day, 24-hour day, several hundred session global education conference, which promises this year to be bigger than ever. IRON is our primary partner. Uh, we expect um, somewhere in the range of 20,000 plus attendees. Um, really should be a blast. Anyway, all free and all for you to tune into. And again, both the Library 2.012 and the Global Education Conference are still accepting session proposals. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, Pat Faringa talks to us about John Holt and the homeschooling movement. Shelley Blake Block uh, on the Digital Harbor Foundation. The next week, Jamie Ballmer on his book, uh, Schools Cannot Do It Alone. And Charles Fidel on what students should learn, what should students learn in the 21st century. Bob Glenner comes back with his new film on schools that change communities. And you can see much more there. I'm very excited about the September 26th show on the true history of the MOOC with Dave Cormier, Alec Coros, Stephen Downs, Rita Cobb, George Siemens, Inga DeWard, and Carol Yeager. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, Thomas Vanderark on his book Getting Smart. Kirsten Olson comes on to talk about her book Wounded by School, Recapturing the Joy in Learning and Standing Up to the Old School Culture. Uh, and then Blake Bowles, uh, oh, in fact, I didn't put him down here, but um, Nikhil is going to talk about his new book as well. And I don't have the title of that. One Size Does Not Fit All. Darn, I meant to have that in the session. That's actually coming up in September uh, pretty quickly. Um, but Blake Bowles will talk about better than college, how to build a successful life without a four-year degree. We'll let Angie push back on that. Uh, Denise Pope, Susie Boss, Yael Vishnik. Lots and lots of fun coming up. If you've missed any of our shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. Ron Walk, uh, brilliant book, Wasting Minds. Fascinating discussion with Ron Michael Strong on Socratic Practice, Tony Wagner on Creating Innovators. Anyway, lots there. Hopefully something that's of interest to you. I have to cough. So this is when our huge crowd here gets to let us know where they're participating from. Look for the star to the left of the map. Double click on the map or click on the map. I'm in Park City, Utah, where we had thunder today and maybe some threatening rain. Love that mountain weather. And feel free to shout out where you're from. We know we have two from Arizona. Corey, Robin, Vance don't know where you're from, but you're glad to have you with us. Three from Arizona. Rob's outside of Philadelphia. Angie's in San Francisco. So wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we appreciate you taking the time. 
There is a Mighty Bell space for this session, and I forgot to take the note of that. I'll, I'll put it in the chat later, but Mighty Bell is the new Gina Bean Keeney project uh, that I'm consulting on. It's a curation and conversation piece, but it's a good place to put uh, resources and links, and we'll put a, a link in there later for you. So Andrew, I'm, I really look forward to this. We had some email correspondence. We don't have a, too much of a set format for tonight, but uh, I think you have something a story to tell that's going to be very interesting. Before we get to the actual practices, I'm going to turn my video off here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what's brought you to this point? That's a long story. I'm not sure we want to go with all of that. But um, in 1994, I became an early childhood teacher and have been teaching ever since then. Um, spent just about 14 years in K-12 education before I became a school administrator, which really was um, one of the highlights of my career. Um, just about five years ago or so, I kind of switched to the dark side and, and went into the private side of education. And I think if there's a storyline in my career, it's really been that you know, I, I got so much out of working with the 25 or 30 students in front of me, and as an administrator, I could affect, you know, thousands through working with the educators um, and colleagues that I had the privilege of serving, and then moving on as a higher education instructor, professional development person, and then person who works on the cultivation of technology products that can mediate all kinds of learning experiences. Um, I have the ability now to to help you know, improve teaching and learning models across the country. So um, what brought me here was really the opportunity at Apollo Group to build technology tools with great investment behind them that are, are research-based and that can affect hundreds of thousands of students you know, today. So the massive sample size for understanding research was also um, you know, and trying out new things was really um, also a great appeal. So I've been here with the Apollo Group for just about two and a half years now. So Angie, one of the things we've talked about in the show, and uh, it may not be fully accurate, but it feels as though technology and education typically tends to do one of two things. It uh, scales, producing, of course, data exhaust is a part of that scaling, or it uh, deepens relationships. But typically, those two don't really feel like they marry well. Um, it sounds like you feel like you, you are able to marry the two. Well, if we take a step back and think about, think about the one-room schoolhouse for a minute, um, what, one of the things that is sort of my mantra is that what we're really trying to do with technology is to give back the tools and insight and visibility into what students need that the best kindergarten teacher in the world or the best teacher in a one-room schoolhouse has. So when we talk about adaptive learning and uh, personalization, this is nothing new. It's a human phenomenon that all good teachers do. What we're trying to do at scale, to your point, is to try to understand what those best practices are that help students learn in an individual way and trying to systematize those so that we can help faculty do them even better at scale and with students that they may never meet. Um, you all have probably seen the Sloan Foundation report in 2011 in online learning that explained something like a third of all higher education students have taken at least one online course. And there are just, there are millions, six million plus students who are enrolled in them right now. And so as an online faculty member of several years, I've lost the ability that a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse or a face-to-face -face kindergartner has every moment to continuously collect data about what's happening in my classroom. Susie needs to tie her shoes. Johnny's about to have a meltdown. She needs some assistance, you know, some assistance in reading. So if you think about the, uh, the data processing that's happening in the brain of a talented teacher, and in the collective brains of a talented group of faculty in an institution, when you remove the visibility and the relationships that get built by just sitting in the same room for seven hours a day, um, you kind of have to make up for that by, by technology-mediated relationship deepening. So I don't see those 
two things at odds. I think what connects them um, is insight. Insight and the ability to observe and discern what students need exactly when they need it, which educators are inclined to do. But again, if there's a screen between us and even an even bigger challenge, which is we may never ever speak synchronously, and we might only have a synchronous relationship, my students and me, I need other tools to have that kind of discernment. So I mean, that's yes, we can scale. And yes, we can deepen relationships. But the most important thing is restoring that insight. OK, so you've painted a nice vision. And, and I like it. But I, I am still troubled. Because it feels as though the, to, to get to that level of sort of sensitivity about how you use the data and for what purposes uh, has trouble getting out. Meaning, uh, when I when I hear about these massive online courses and the and the talk of robo grading, and um, and and some of the practices, it feels as though that for most or institutions or organizations who who would say they're trying to marry the two, that they actually end up really um, favoring the scale and not doing a very good job with the relationships. Do you feel like what you're doing is unique, or am I missing the picture? Yeah, so I think what you're talking about really is a tension between efficiency and effectiveness. So um, just think of any big box store that you go to because they have lower prices. The reason that you go there is not because your experience is as nice as your corner hardware store because you know the guy and he's your cousin's brother. you know. But what you get is lower prices because the business in a big box store has become very efficient and probably less personal. Um, so in higher education, we cannot afford to have a tension between efficiency and effectiveness. We have to be effective. So I mean, to get straight to what I think is the heart of your question and the reason that Apollo Group has invested in me as a faculty member, and the reason that my title is called Director of Faculty Innovations is that I believe very strongly that a well-informed, a data-driven um, faculty member who has the right insights in front of them and the ability to deepen relationships because they have simple tools, like the one we're using here where you can see me. I can't see you all, so I feel a little bit like I'm talking to the ether. But um, so building those basic tools and social networks that allow students to feel more connected, uh, mobile devices that allow students to get more real-time interactions with me as their faculty member. The main the main point here to answer your question is that faculty members need deeper insight so that they can deliver the highest quality and most effective instruction possible. Um, you know, so some adaptive learning, I'll put it in air quotes, some adaptive learning products act perhaps like Pandora and say, here's the thing you need. You need this thing because I observed these three data points and I crunched the numbers and here's what you need. What, what we're saying is that faculty need better insight, and institutions need better insight through, through the correct crunching of, of big data in order to make high quality decisions. We don't want to have a tension between efficiency, which is synonymous with scale, right, and effectiveness. Again, I think I'm going to give you credit for being very thoughtful in your approach, because I'm, I'm not sure you're representative or reflective of a lot of the um, examples that we're seeing of large-scale courses, especially in the MOOC world, which is not how MOOCs were originally intended, but uh, where it does feel as though the um, efficiency trumps the effectiveness. So um, let me ask a question. I don't think this is what you actually believe because uh, of our email correspondence. But in your description so far, you have mentioned the value of this data primarily for the teacher building a relationship with the student. And it seems that also part of what makes you unique and interesting to me is the sense that that data really can benefit the student in a way that big data at Amazon.com or Pandora gives us benefit as individuals in making better decisions. Or the output on the Prius dashboard tells us something about our driving that we didn't know. That's got to be a part of your push as well, right? Right. So I mean, before I 
touch on that, I kind of want to double click on um, the comparison to a MOOC. MOOCs have very, very different um, expected outcomes and visions for what they do than a university does, right? So I'm a faculty member at University of Phoenix. We have an average of 15 to 16 students per course. So if we have any problem um, or had any problem in the past, it's that you know, we put a small group of people together and they didn't actually feel connected prior to the release of Phoenix Connect, which is a massive social network that I would love to, to share more about here. Um, but because classes are very small, the opportunity to engage one-on-one -on -one has been there for a long time. Now we have an opportunity for students to engage one to hundreds of thousands, which is another topic. But a MOOC isn't necessarily meant to do that. But, but the, the point that I was trying to make before is that even though I only have 16 students in my ethics class, I know so little about them. And in a five-week course, it's really tough for me to get to know them. So I need to be front-loaded a little bit with more information about my students' aspirations. How prepared are they for this course? What are they interested in doing? What kind of experience do they bring to this course room? We're all adults, and so we want to leverage those things. But if I, if I have a system that gives me a little bit more information about them, then I can begin sooner um, to be more efficient about customizing the experience for them. Do, I hope that makes a little bit of sense. I, I want to make sure that we don't conflate the mission of a MOOC with the mission of an institution such as University of Phoenix or any other um, accredited university that offers a credit-bearing course. I'm glad you made the distinction. I think it's, it is interesting because we are talking about technologies that allow for learning online, and there are going to be a variety of different solutions that are offered. And in part, what, you know, what you've helped us to do is, that, is to frame the experience from the side of a, an instructor in the, a more traditionally sized class, which makes a lot of sense. Every once in a while, I'll encounter somebody who's teaching online who will tell me, I will never go back to teaching in a physical classroom because I feel like I get so much more individual relationship building with the students than I ever did when they were physically in the same room. Has that been your experience and do you hear that as well? Yeah, so I taught for University of Phoenix in my first couple of years um, on the ground and there was a very particular kind of comfort there. Um, there was a different kind of time, um, time bound or time limiting factor. So, you know, it was a four hour class once a week and, you know, when it was over I kind of had to grade papers and that was sort of it. But there was also a high touch um, opportunity to get to know people pretty quickly because I'm reading their paralinguistics and shaking their hand and by the end of the course it's full embrace hugging and sometimes quite frankly crying about something because we made a quick personal connection. That being said, we all know the person who would never raise their hand in a classroom, the person who uh, might fly off the handle if somebody says something that sort of violates their ideology, um, somebody for whom an online classroom provides them the most customization and frankly more one-on-one -on -one conversations and interaction with their faculty members. Um, so, so I think different people respond differently to those modalities. I love teaching online now. It, it's definitely, for me, it's more work because by the second week of the class, I've been on the phone, I've spoken with every single student, I've gotten to know a little bit about their life, something about their career aspirations so I can start to build relevance with the curriculum to what those people are interested in doing. Again, I only have 16 of them, so I can afford the time to do that. But what we see is very careful, very deliberate and thoughtful responses to really rich discussions in, in class that you often cannot afford to do in, in a face-to-face -face class. So, so the models shift a lot between who is the person who knows all of this content and who are the people who are going to listen to it from the expert. That's sort of the traditional face-to-face -face model, but an online environment really allows people to kind of go out and forage for information and bring to bear on the learning experience for everyone their own life experiences and you know in an institution like University of Phoenix and so many others where students are quote non-traditional more and more 
meaning they're not 19, um, they have a lot of experience to bear. Um, and they are out there working in the fields in which, you know, they sort of aspire to, to kind of climb the ladder of success. So, you know, different models, but again, we, we need to think about the technology tools that mediate those models so that we can optimize each one of them. And that's, that's part of what we're doing here at Apollo Group. Okay, so I, I, I do want to get to Phoenix Connect. Uh, I started the Classroom 2.0 five years ago. For a long time, I called it the world's largest social network for education. I'm wondering if that was ever even true because um, my 70,000 members sort of pales in comparison to the 400,000 in Phoenix Connect, or maybe that number's even dated. Um, so, so don't, so let me down easy. I, I don't, you know, I, my, my pride can take it though. Um, tell me a little bit about Phoenix Connect. Uh, you know, how fast is it ramped up? What are you doing? And, and uh, in what ways is it unique? Well, to date, Steve, over 740,000 accounts have been opened on Phoenix Connect because we've opened it up to current students, opened it up to our 30-some thousand faculty members, and then subsequently opened up to our alumni. Um, and so, you know, Phoenix Connect is very much like other social networks that, that you're all familiar with. But the most interesting and just goose flesh inducing part of it is that it, it, most of the conversations that are happening there are highly academic and very much sort of swirling around the career interests of our students. So you can just imagine a rich area where students can reach out of that class of 15 people that they happen to be in, where some of them might be interested in entrepreneurship and others might be interested in, you know, business leadership, et cetera. But they can go out and find groups that are very, very well tailored to, um, to whatever profession that they're most interested in doing. I think, you know, given the massive rise of engagement in online learning across the country, Phoenix Connect has taught us something really important about restoring, if you will. I don't mean to say that online education kind of starts at a negative um, point of connectedness. But it is true that if you're in an online course and you have 15 other students in that course and one faculty member, you are much less likely to be able to connect and bond with somebody who is of like interest and, you know, very similar in your sort of learning profile or even just your, your lot in life. So what we've seen is just thousands and thousands of groups and, and all kinds of support areas on Phoenix Connect where people can go and bring their academic interests, get support from others and from the institution itself um, so that they can sort of really bridge the academic learning that they're doing. You know, for example, the ethics course that I'm teaching now is full of nurses. And those nurses tell me that they're now having conversations in Phoenix Connect in their LPN groups about the ethical dilemmas that we're studying in our class. So the overarching message of it is that your, your class walls have now kind of been stripped away. And you, our students and our faculty members are sort of ready to, or using Phoenix Connect to open up, remove those walls, and have discussions that are very germane to, to their career aspirations and experiences. So help me and our audience to understand the demographics of those who are um, enrolled at Phoenix. Largely adult learners? Largely adult learners. Um, we do have an annual report that comes out every year. We're um, very proud to release all of that information, so it is out there, and I'm as sad to say that I'm not fully informed on all of that, but there has been a trend um, in the, the acceptance and enrollment of students who are zero-credit students who come to us as first-time college students, so that trend has definitely changed University of Phoenix. Um, was very, very successful early on serving mid-career professionals who needed, you know, graduate degrees and bachelor's degrees and certificates to become, you know, the next level of nurse or to become, um, you know, kind of higher on the pay scale for, you know, teaching in various states. Um, but yeah, we've expanded massively our programs in associates and bachelor's degrees to, um, to be able to serve students who are, you know, maybe fresh out of high school after a couple of years of being 
um, in the job market. So it's, it's definitely changing. Well, the reason I ask that is, ask that is um, there are a number of organizations that have tried to start mentorship networks for K-12 students. And my personal perception is that these have been, uh, this has been difficult territory uh, to, to create a place where students can find others in a community of practice where they can begin to join their practice and kind of apprentice within the group and try things out. But it feels like with a group of adult, with a largely adult learners and of a network of this size, that you have a, a pretty amazing potential here to be uh, allowing individuals to go into a community of practice, to become a part of that community through sort of traditional methods by which people do that, but all online. And, and so very quickly and much more rapidly and easily than otherwise could occur. Is that uh, sort of a fair representation of what is happening? Or do you see that happening? Absolutely. So imagine the youngest associate's degree student, who I, I would presume is something in the neighborhood of 18. And then imagine, um, you know, an octogenarian who is, you know, who is taking some associate's classes or is an alumnus or a faculty member. Now put all, you know, five, six, half a million of them into a social network. Allow them to build a profile that lists their expertise, their degrees, the courses that they have taken, that they teach, you know, the areas of research interest. And the, the beauty of the system is that it helps to match you with people who share your interests both inside and outside of the classroom. Imagine matching, you know, math tutors in Phoenix Connect and community leaders who are employees of the institution, you know, in, in a group where people who are struggling with factoring polynomials can go outside of their classroom, so, so really seeking support. Um, outside of the regular resources of the classroom so that they can help themselves. So, so yes, the richness of the community is, is really brilliant there. And all of the various years of experience, I wish our analysts could, could collect that because that's really where the magic happens. And the fact that it's curated in an organized system is what really brings to life um, the benefits that you're describing. This is an area of deep personal interest for me, which is the the digital profile, the ways in which finding somebody in a community like this allows us to, to match interests. Are there ways in which you do that kind of um, data matching behind the scenes to surface connections and relationships that people might have? If I were to go into Phoenix Connect and find uh, somebody, do I have a, a pretty quick ability to see what their interests are and, and what kinds of coursework they're doing? Sure. Um, since the launch of Phoenix Connect, almost 400,000 new connections have been made in that platform. Um, and so the most important thing to know here is that there are very granular privacy controls and, uh, you know, and controls so that you can decide what it is about you that you want to be made available and visible to others so that they can connect with you. So not unlike other social networks where you have that level of choice, um, Phoenix Connect offers that. So that's one thing to say. Um, and I'll just tell you a quick anecdote because I want to drive home why that's really important. Um, I did a master's program once with a student who was a Latino woman who grew up in an area where she felt very discriminated against academically, although an incredibly bright woman. So it was astonishing to me that, that this was her experience. She decided to do a doctoral program in an online environment because the one thing that she wanted to do was not post a photograph, and she used a pseudonym in the actual online classroom so that no one would be able to detect in any way that she had a Latino background. I share that story because part of college is reinventing yourself and surmounting whatever hurdles may have been in your life and becoming the future self that you imagine for you. And so Phoenix Connect is actually kind of a ladder to doing that um, as I see it because you know, when we do 
analyses of the actual conversations and we see that the vast majority of them are professional and academic in nature, we can see that there, there is a thirst among our students to reach out of the curriculum that's being given to them in order to help them reach their degree-seeking goals. But they are relying on the community to get support and to share best practices, as you just have very well described it. Um, so the granular privacy controls are really important, but yes, certainly there is an ability for us to generate recommendations, not unlike, you know, other users like you on Amazon also bought. Um, and that's an area that we're, that we're exploring in a lot of aspects of the learning experience, not just on Phoenix Connect, but also in our just vast resources available in the Centers for Math and Writing Excellence. And, in the media library where there's just a massive um, collection of resources that can help to supplement the textbooks and other curricula that we offer our students so that they can receive just in time the right materials delivered in the right learning modality to meet the needs that they, that they have at that moment. Okay, there's more I want to ask, but I'll come back if we have time for the end. So let's talk right. about hyper-personalization and the connection with students driving their own learning. How do these relate? Yeah, you said something a moment ago about driving a Prius and having a little dashboard there, and I think that may have been something that came up because I, I have a, a kind of a low-end little car. It doesn't even have power locks. You know, I bought this junky car because I live in San Francisco and I never drive now. But the one cool thing that it has on it is this little meter that tells me what gas mileage I'm getting everywhere I go. And nothing, even having children in the back of my car, has, has ever motivated me to be a more efficient driver. But I look at this little thing and it's constantly informing and helping me decide what my behavior is. And it's just a, a very small anecdote to remind us that data put in front of us at the right time, about the right things and in the right way, I know there are a lot of conditions there, but all of that stuff is important to consider, can help us make better decisions. Um, we see that when we play games. You know, there are badges available to us and points that we see constantly um, before us on dashboards and little coins that appear before us that help motivate us to do things. So um, it's not so much the hyper-personalization that drives a greater self-awareness among learners but having the right data available to us so that as learners we can self-monitor and, and thus I think take more responsibility for those behaviors that are most associated with success and progression and GPA and, and grades on exams or papers, et cetera. So I mean, just to draw a couple of examples, um, we know that in an online environment, logging in frequently is important. We have to stay connected to our learning teams online. We need to stay connected to our assignments. Um, and so what we've learned is just having a little dashboard in front of students that say, you know, congratulations, you logged in two times more than you absolutely had to this week um, can be very motivating to students. And so our team is working on some pilots to try to understand what that motivational factor is and for what students it's really effective. Um, but, but there's a flip side of that coin. Unfortunately, it's not as clean as, as I wish it were. Sometimes putting data before people is very discouraging. What if I happen to be the poorest reader in my class? What if I already know that I really stink in algebra? Do I need that in front of me? So I think what we have to to do is hyper-personalize the actual presentation of data that helps students become more self-aware. Um, and that's, that's not simple. No, and that's an interesting phrase. Um, we've had two questions come up in the chat that are going to distract us for just a moment. I'll ask them and then we'll come back. Kiri wants to know, she's interested in hearing more about what ongoing data feedback online students can provide to their instructors that would be most useful. I love it. Thank you so much. And it was Kiri? Kiri, thank you for that question. I think it's a really important one, especially when you're, when you're working with adult learners, I think. Maybe not. Um, I think that children, as well, young children, should be asked a whole lot more. How is this working for you? Was this assignment easy, hard, 
fun, uh, boring, all of the questions that you might get in an exit survey anytime you use any technology product. I think we need to think a whole lot more like marketing people do. I'm not one of them, but, but I appreciate um, the data collection and the instrumentation of the student experience being used to help improve the way that we serve our students. I think there's some other pretty simple ways that we can gather from other consumer-facing web industries, like ratings, likes and dislikes, um, four stars on something that was particularly useful and helpful to you, um, recommendations to others. We need to be monitoring the way that students perceive certain, for example, video materials that we might make for them. We have to keep in mind that if I make a video for you about, again, factoring polynomials just as well as I make a video for you about how to format your paper in APA, your like or dislike is certainly going to be responsive to the content. But there are other things that, that live inside that like and dislike that we have to figure out how to discern. Um, getting into some really nitty-gritty dimensions of hyper-personalization, like does a longer video really um, help you if there's much more detail? Or if you're learning how to factor polynomials, would it be better for you if it was just a chunky little bit, one thing at a time? Do you need to stack your learning, or would you prefer to be really immersed in it? So what, what we realize is that um, from a, a truly a neuroscientific perspective and a, you know, a cognitive science perspective, there are so many dimensions of learning and we know that we can't ask students to report out on their experience in every one of those dimensions. We have to figure out how to collect the right data and parse it using the right kind of algorithms and we have brilliant, brilliant scientists working on this for a long time and it's a really tough, grand challenge, we know that. But we have to start kind of following in, in some ways um, the model of Pandora, which says, you know, there are 95 dimensions of the song, um, somebody name a song in the chat that I can use as an example. There are 100 dimensions of this song, and we have to figure out what they are, and then over the course of many, many people listening to many, many songs, we can start to understand which dimensions of that song appeal to you work for you, et cetera. So I know I'm getting a little bit into the weeds, but I think it's important to do that to be able to, to respond to, to Kiri's question. So I'm, uh, there is still another question, but I want to actually follow up this one just a little. So Google does this for me, right, with search. So Google says sure. uh, there is no completely objective search. So when you search, it takes into account the previous searches you have done, your network, maybe now Google Plus information, and it feeds it back to me. That's extremely frustrating to me because sometimes I want to do a search and I have to go into the advanced search and say, just give me the standard search results you would give somebody else because I can't have perspective if I don't know what you're factoring in. I could search on my own name and all of a sudden it looks like I'm really famous, but it's because Google knows that I want to see my own name. So how do you balance the right. transparency of the activity that you're performing behind the scenes uh, with that performance? Such a great question. I think that's the best question I've ever been asked about hyper-personalization. The other day, I was on Twitter following the Republican National Convention, and I was watching my trends, you know, on the trending page. And I realized, why isn't anybody trending the RNC? This is, I don't get it. Why not? I realized it was because Twitter was customizing my trends. And I thought, how can you, there can't be trends for me. The world has trends. There are hashtags. Just show me what they are. I want to know what they are because I'm really, I, I use Twitter because I want to stay on top. So one thing that honestly has kept me up at night and that we're definitely considering is in the same way that now Slate Magazine, some of you might read that, Slate Magazine and Google and Netflix and Pandora and many other services like this only show you what they think that you want to know, which means that if your view of the world is being filtered through their algorithms, you have a pretty skewed view, right? So, so I totally appreciate the problem. 
Um, I think there are a few things that we have to consider here. One, I'll go back to what I said before, that we have to still rely on the humans, the experts in educating you and the people who know you in ways that your system can never instrument or monitor. Um, and when we make recommendations, we should, we should often, especially the really important recommendations, we should do two things. One is we should make them through a faculty member with transparency about why they were made. Because sometimes a system might, quote, think something, and a faculty member can refute it quickly. So we need to be able to have a lot of transparency about the reasons that recommendations are made. Now, that doesn't mean that we display a big, long algorithm. But um, I think Netflix has done this well, because they've said, first of all, they expose all of their algorithms and challenge people to better them. And if they do, they have a big prize to give you. But Netflix will say, we recommended this movie because of your interest in these three things. And so if you think about the long list of attributes and characteristics of students and the match with their faculty member, which is something that's an interesting um, proposition, they include demographic things, uh, domain knowledge and skills, experience, academic aptitude, your personality traits, your cognitive traits, co-native attributes, your professional interests, all those things social learning aptitude. So considering all of those things, I really believe that we need to make recommendations to people and not force them down a path that the system thinks is best for them. Now that being said, um, there, I believe that the, the next part of the loop is that the system needs to observe I talk about the system like it's a mothership. But the system needs to observe what choices are being made among the system-generated recommendations so that we can understand better why those choices are being made. Because you know the truth is that when you're offered a Pandora song, Pandora doesn't really know why you like that song. It takes lots and lots of data loops and crunching to eventually identify the two or three markers in that song that probably appeal to you. But look, learning and teaching are not as simple as you liking a song, or not liking a song, or maybe liking a song, or not liking a song right now. Learning and teaching are a dance that is a group social dance, and it changes every second. It feels different at midnight than it feels at 1 AM. It's different in math than it is in, in literature, et cetera. I mean, the list could go on and on. So because it's so nuanced and because cognitive scientists and the best minds in the world don't fully understand this really complex human phenomenon, we have to give it back to humans as recommendations and watch what they do. So really long answer, very simple, though, at the end of the day. Um, it's too complex to oversimplify with a model like what Google and, and Netflix do. Does that make sense it to you? It does, and it's sort of intriguing because um, I'm not a huge fan of Pandora, in part because I like to make more conscious choices. Oh, I don't mind it in the background. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I don't find myself using it much. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. much happier with my experience with Amazon because the system is very transparent to me as to how the choices are made and the recommendations. And it's a combination of the data recommendations and the individual recommendations of people who write reviews who say, you know, this book gets bad reviews, but believe me, it's probably the best thing that's ever been written on this topic. Or the better book is XYZ. So somehow it's that combination of the human and the, and the algorithms that provide an environment for me where I feel like I'm in charge, but I'm better because of it. Exactly. But Steve, you can't forget about the stumble upon effect that a recommendation engine like Amazon and Netflix and Pandora can offer you. So while we've just identified the problematic side of the skewed effect or the narrowing effect of your lens of the, on the world or on music or on books or whatever it is, but with a vast wealth of library resources and uh, video resources and other things that might be able to help you learn, you can't sort through them all, right, as a student. Imagine that you're taking a quiz on the split infinitive. Please don't ever give me one of those quizzes. But imagine that you were, and you were really struggling with a comma. And, 
and it was clear in your learner profile that you've struggled with the comma before and in a similar situation. And other students like you really did well with, with a similar profile than you really did well with these two or three little interactive exercises plus this one video. So what if in the midst of taking that quiz about the split infinitive, you were given, hey, I've got this couple of recommendations for you. Would you like to do this interactive game or would you like to watch this little video? You know, 95% of students like you were assisted by this. It only takes two minutes. Which one do you want to do? So that's kind of, that's kind of a vision for a way that honors the autonomy of students, empowers them to make their own choices about what to do. And, and also offer some rationale for, for doing it. So I think we're kind of saying the same thing, but, but my point is the stumble-on effect that might have happened as a result of that student experience is, oh my gosh, all these videos about the comma are out there in the media library and I can use them whenever I want. Awesome. So that's, that's kind of the balance that we want to strike between respecting the autonomy of a student and his or her faculty member, but also delivering something that you might you may not actually know you need. And that's also a problem with Google, right? How many times do you try to Google a word you can't think of? It just doesn't work. So the same may be true if you're trying to figure out why you have a split infinitive problem. If maybe you never even heard the phrase split infinitive. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I would say it's probably accurate that I have bought um, some significant number of books because there was a, a machine recommendation that said, hey, you might like this. Um, okay, so there is another question. We get back to the question. I, I do want to get to mobile uh, and to sort of uh, allow you to finish up anything on the sort of ethical side of the of the uh, analytics. Rob wants to know how do you see this kind of metacognition and behavior coaching to be differentiated between secondary and post-secondary settings? And I think that may be going back to this difference between adult learners for whom learning how to learn is clearly the goal versus a, a K-12 learner in a system right now which puts a premium on compliance versus agency. Yeah. Oh, man. You really want me to wax that philosophical? I, I think it's completely wrong if we don't think that metacognition is a, is a primary goal of moving through the K-12 system. I, I'm, I'm desperately hoping that, that the common core sort of embraces that. I've been out of K-12 for, for several years now, but um, I think we, we do need to look at the developmental appropriateness of putting data in front of students. But look, we're already doing it. I mean, programs like Accelerated Reader and others give students at first grade and above immediate feedback about how they did you know, on, on a particular online reading quiz or what have you, and we have all these response to intervention systems that, that provide dashboards for students and their families so that they can monitor really important um, mastery of learning objectives and the standards. So um, Rob, I, I'm not an expert uh, on, on metacognition at various developmental levels, um, but again, I think especially in K-12 in the elementary school, we ought to be really careful to defer to the expertise of the teacher in the classroom who, who knows each one of those kids and knows what kinds of data sets ought to be, you know, surfaced to, to individual students. I can really see the importance of differentiating those things and perhaps offering more candid data to certain students who might be really motivated by it. And, and maybe sheltering or releasing slowly for those students who might be intimidated or actually, you know, for whom it might be counterproductive. So I, I don't know. I'd be interested to see what you all think about that. Rob says in the chat it's a nut they're currently trying to crack. Right. So I, I want to move <laughs> to mobile. If, if anybody else has any questions, please feel free to put them in the chat. We've only got about 10 minutes left which is typical for a, a conversation this engaged. Um, <clears throat> tell me about mobile. I heard, I heard something very interesting this morning in a session that I did where there, uh, somebody said the rate of adoption of mobile in non-Caucasian populations is so high that the use of mobile is actually uh, potentially going to have a significant impact on achievement levels for those who, who have often been ignored before. 
is that accurate? Would you say that, that you're seeing some of the same things? And then let me let you allow you to go in anywhere you want with mobile. Sure. Yeah, I have heard that. I don't have um, hard numbers on it. I'd love for you to share what you read with me. But there are some interesting things that are making educators take note of mobile. And um, it's, it's been on our radar, and we've been investing quite a lot in the development of native mobile applications that help our students and faculty stay connected. The first really interesting and sort of startling um, datum about this is that sales of PCs and, and laptops like the ones that I'm using now are declining dramatically in, in um, comparison to other mobile devices like the iPhone, iPads, um, and other kinds of tablet devices. So that's the first thing to say. People are not buying PCs and laptops as much anymore. They're, they're buying um, mobile devices because they want to move about the cabin, right? So that's interesting. But also when we look at data about consumption of content online, um, in June of, of 2010, I'm just kind of looking at some notes here, web browsing on average, um, Americans spend about 60 minutes per day, so just, just about an hour on the web, consuming content, visiting news sites, et cetera, and about 43 minutes on mobile apps. But as of December of last year, they spent 94 minutes a day on mobile apps consuming content and much less on, on, on you know, the web. So what that tells us is that people want to consume content when they want it and they don't care, you know, they don't want it to be landlocked to, you know, to a machine. So um, University of Phoenix in April of last year released its 1.0 version of the mobile classroom application which allowed um, students to go to class basically wherever they were. So um, one of the things that's interesting to just kind of double click on what you said a minute ago about, about minorities using, you know, adopting mobile applications more um, is that folks, some, some of our students, quite frankly, don't have computers. Some students cannot afford to have a computer, but they can afford to have an iPhone and they can perhaps afford to have a tablet. Um, so making that a, a more mobile experience might actually allow someone to get a degree and achieve their dream because they're not sitting in a library locked to this machine that they have to scan in every hour, right? So sort of adding inconvenience is only the beginning of it. It's really allowing greater access. So. Um, to date, about 350,000 students and faculty members have adopted the mobile application at University of Phoenix. Um, it's now in its version 3.0, which has um, a dramatically increased number of features that allows me to make sure that if my students have a question, I can answer it in five minutes. Um, I get a little alert when they have something that they need from me and, and I can get right back to them. On a monthly average, I think we sort of have 130 140,000 um, active users using, using the mobile application regularly to get into their classes. Um, so the main thing initially was really just about access. You know, let's, let's get people to be able to be in there so that they don't have to wait until 10 p.m. when the kids are in bed and they can go down to their basement and engage in their class. Um, so it's really important um, for an access reason. But we're starting to see some interesting trends that we are, are just about to launch into a, a very lengthy study on. We're seeing some associations with the use of, of mobile and retention rates and, and GPAs. So um, we really need to kind of dig in and get to the bottom of what those things mean. But qualitatively, students are very clear that um, they, they may not be able to to proceed and, and finish um, the commitment that they made to their schooling with, without the mobile device. So I think we've created something that seems that's indispensable. Um, the really interesting questions that are at the top of my mind are, does the fact that I have this mobile device on when I'm standing waiting for the subway or I'm in a cab or, you know, I've got five minutes while I'm waiting in line at the bank, does that more stackable um, distributed throughout the day interaction with my class sort of increase the ubiquity of thought about the economics class I'm taking. And what does that mean to be connected maybe more frequently with my team, for example, or my faculty member? Um, what does it do to the rhythm and the pace of, of the learning experience? So all of those questions are, 
really interesting, um, we see some interesting correlations. We're just now trying to unpack and uncover what they mean. Uh, our 14-year-old daughter was complaining last night at the computer that she types slower than she can text on her phone. And we decided someone needs to invent a keyboard for a PC that's actually a thumb text keyboard. The, the wow. mobile phone for me, the mobile device, has been an incredibly liberating device. Um, I have audible um, books on my, on my phone that I can listen to at any time I want. I've got the Kindle and I've got other books that I can read on my phone. I can go to Wikipedia on the web. I can look at uh, kind of, it's sort of a dream for somebody who's an autodidact, this device. What role is there for, and what do we need to be thinking about with regard to teaching learning through technology? This, I mean, I, I would say, I'm going to joke about our 14-year-old daughter who happens to be our child who's the most understanding of the metacognitive level of learning. But do most students grasp the potential, or is there actually a place for needing to teach that? You know what I worry about? Um, just to kind of elaborate on it, I'm not sure that I have the answer, but one of the things in this information age and the knowledge economy that we've really failed to prepare ourselves for and our, and our students for is how to decipher the millions of opportunities that we have to teach ourselves stuff, how to evaluate each site that we land on and each link that we see that looks like a legitimate link but is actually an advertisement or worse yet, you know, spam or, or you know, some kind of virus. So I think um, discernment and critically evaluating the myriad opportunities to learn and, and find things out and, and sift through stuff is really a skill that we, we didn't quite get in front of because I don't think we anticipated this knowledge explosion. Um, so that's a problem, but I think it's a it's a coachable it's a coachable problem, right? Um, the other thing that I worry about with mobile um, consumption is not so much attention span and our brains being rewired. I mean, I don't understand all I know about all of those claims, but we sort of have cultivated through this quick snacking, like uh, knowledge snacking, um, this feeling that because I read the kind of first three lines of a Wikipedia page, I totally understand astrophysics, you know? And so I, I, I worry that we've, we've bundled all this information and we've packaged it on our smartphones and it's available in two seconds when we need an answer to something or we're playing against, you know, Alex Trebek or something um, that, that we know, that we understand and that we have real knowledge. Those are my worries um, when I think about my 20-year-old daughter who believes she does know everything there is to know about astrophysics because she read the first three lines of the Wikipedia page. So I don't know if that answers your question, Steve, but I think it's, um, I think it's a concern. Really learning is not something that you just hop on a two-inch screen and do, right? It's a, it's a longer investment. And so we don't see the, our mobile device as a comprehensive tool for learning everything you need to know to get three credits or an economics course. We see it as an access tool and a way to stay connected to your teammates, to your faculty members, um, and to your, your classmates. So connectedness is really, um, is really our goal there. That's a great place to finish um, because I am intrigued by the degree to which connectedness is a significant part of how we learn. Um, you know, I think it's, it's fun to watch someone like Sugata Mitra uh, run experiments to see how much kids can learn uh, through that environment of, of learning without a teacher, or to hear Howard Rheingold talk about a pedagogy or pedagogy, um, and and recognizing the degree to which, uh, for me, until I talk about it, I haven't really processed or learned. So, uh, you know, reading a book is very different than holding a conversation about the book, and I and I like in a lot of ways in huge ways what technology is doing to provide us with these opportunities for that kind of connecting. Um, as a courtesy to our guests, we do finish on time. So we're going to 
we're going to close. But thank you, Angie. It's a delight. I feel like I could spend two more hours asking you questions. Maybe someday we can. But thanks for coming on and, and sharing what you're doing. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yes, really fun. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, we can see by the sun on your back wall that time has gone by. Probably time for you to get in that car and go home, right? I'm going to jump on my mobile device and see what's going on in my car. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Angie. So we've been talking to Angie McAllister. This has been the Future of Education. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Angie. I'm sorry the crowd wasn't larger, but uh, you did a great job. Bye now. Bye-bye.